On behalf of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, let me welcome you to find your way to a pew and to open your Bible to all who are weary and in need of rest, to all who are grieved and in need of comfort, to all who sin and are in need of a Savior. We welcome you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 12 and to meet with the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Holy Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Isaiah chapter 12 appearing on page 576 of the Church Bible. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the little numbers. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. I'll be standing by those doors on your way out. Come say hi. Isaiah chapter 12, what we'll do is I'll go ahead and read the whole chapter, which is only six verses, and then ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work our way through this glorious passage as we consider joy as it relates to Advent. Isaiah chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. You will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout! And sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, please receive our thanks for your mercy and your grace, for the gift of your Holy Spirit wrought joy. Father, we recognize that we are dependent upon you today for understanding from your word and from the fruit that comes from study of your word. And so we ask now, as we have asked so many times in the past, that you would send us your Holy Spirit here today and take what is of Jesus and declare it to us. For Jesus' sake we ask, amen. Have you ever wondered what would happen if you took a Hallmark movie and ran it backwards? I suspect you would find a a pretty girl in her late 20s changing her Christmas sweater and dumping her small town boyfriend and moving to the big city to take a big job, a very important job where she wears pencil skirts and cute heels and lives happily ever after. Well, I don't like making fun of Hallmark movies. It's about the only wholesome form of entertainment we have left. However, 
If the screenwriters of Hallmark are right, then Christmas is mostly about leisurely small-town life and cute cafes and time with family and friends around a Christmas tree. But none of that is wrong, of course. All of that might be very well good. It's just, is that what makes Christmas the hap- happiest season of all? Christians call Christmas, Advent. I don't know exactly when we started calling it that, but from the very beginning, Christians have been setting aside a time of the year, every year, to celebrate and to remember God coming into the earth, God putting on human flesh. It's a time to remember God become man. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was born to the Virgin Mary and in the city of Bethlehem. And when the time came for Mary to be purified, she and Joseph went up to Jerusalem. And there they met a man called Simeon, who the Bible says was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Simeon takes the Christ child into his arms and listen to what he says to God. My eyes have seen your salvation. In Hebrew, the name Jesus is Yeshua, which which basically means the Lord is salvation. You remember when the angel came to Mary, he said to her, you shall call his name Jesus, For, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. God is salvation. So Advent is about God taking on human flesh to save his people from their sins, to fulfill all of God's promises that he made to them and to grant to them God's eternal inheritance. So it is the happiest season of all when, above all other things, we're considering Christ, Yeshua, God, our salvation. So this Lord's Day and next, we're going to set aside, we're going to take a break from our series in Luke, set aside some time to consider the Advent season. Today we will be focusing on joy, and next week, Lord willing, we'll consider how Advent relates to to love, God's love. Well, here's the big idea this morning. You see it on the screen. Jesus Christ is God's salvation. He is His people's joy and satisfaction. Receive Him, praise Him, and proclaim His glory in all the earth. That Jesus Christ is God's salvation. He is His people's joy and satisfaction, and so receive Him, praise Him, and then proclaim His glory in all the earth. I trust that you'll see all of that in Isaiah chapter chapter 12. I have three points to draw from this glorious little chapter. And the first is this, that God's salvation produces confident praise, that God's salvation produces confident praise. The second point is that God's salvation produces a collective joy, a collective 
joy. And then finally, God's salvation drives corporate mission. God's salvation drives corporate mission. I'll repeat them as we go along so that you can follow along as to where we are. First, God's salvation produces confident praise. This is verses 1 and 2. Let's read it again. You will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. A few things to note. These words, which God gave to the prophet Isaiah, were written something like 700 years before the Lord Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. And they were written in Hebrew, the language Hebrew. Now, Hebrew, like many languages, has the ability to distinguish between a singular you and a plural you. English, we don't really have that ability. Unless you live in the South, then you say y'all which is the plural, or yuns. Some of y'all grew up saying yuns. That's the plural version. In the Midwest, we say you guys, but that's a little clunky. But there's a, there's a way to distinguish between a singular plural, singular, singular you, and then a plural you. Verses 1 and 2 are in the singular. This is, this is why you'll see like I and me and my in verses 1 and 2. But this is all about the change in verse 3. Verses 1 and 2 are this, in the singular. That's the first thing. Second thing to note is that this is prophecy. This refers to future events. Notice, you will say. God is foretelling what will happen. The Bible tells us that God controls and directs all things. And by all things, what do I mean? I mean all things, including all situations, all events, even human reactions to those events. So Isaiah 12 not only foretells us what God will do, but how his people will respond. So what they will say, what emotions they will experience. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That day, so future day, so to Israel's, to, to Isaiah's audience, that's a day that is future, and that day it is so certain what will happen. God says, you will. You will do this because Yahweh willed this. Yahweh always gets his way. And that brings us to the third thing. That you will do this in that day. Well, what day is that? We're just popping in 12 chapters into a letter. And so we should probably figure out where we are in what's going on in Isaiah. So, to figure that out, we have to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. We don't have time to read all 11 chapters, although that would be fun, at least for me. I will spare you that. So chapter 1 opens with God confronting his people in their cold-hearted religion, their empty religiosity. And then in chapter 2, God reveals his hatred of Israel's false worship, their idolatry, their pride. Chapter 3 exposes the corruption of Israel's leaders, their judges, their magistrates, their kings. 
And he promises that he's going to remove their leaders. It's a pretty dark opening to this book. Chapter 4 has a glimmer of light, but it's just a glimmer. Because in chapter 5, the Lord issues several woes against the wickedness of his people, warning them of his judgment to come. And that every Christian loves Isaiah chapter 6, where the Lord is revealed as holy, the thrice holy God. God is holy, holy, holy. But then you see Isaiah, even the best of them, even the best man in his day, Isaiah himself, is undone by his sin in the presence of a holy God. Chapters 7 to 10 lay out God's righteous judgment, dropping in a few hints that God is going to do something about all this. And we're 10 chapters into Isaiah, and we're left wondering just why a holy, good God would put up with such wickedness in his people, so much pride in his own people. It's as if the plan and purposes of God have failed. So imagine if the plans and purposes of God were a tree. It's like the tree got cut down and fell, and it's rotting on the, floor, the forest floor. But to our great surprise, chapter 11 opens with hope. A shoot will spring forth from the dead stump of Jesse, the father of King David. A branch from the lineage of David will appear and bear fruit. A king will arise from the line of David that was thought to have been cut off. And chapter, chapter 11 says that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will be wise. He will have delight in the Lord. He will be righteous. He will judge righteously. He will give peace to his people. He will fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. And this man will mark a second exodus of God's people. Following him, God's people will be freed from slavery. God's people from every nation and tribe and tongue will be drawn to this man. And that is the this day of Isaiah 12, verse 1. You will say, in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So that is the day, that day when the root of Jesse is lifted up, God's people will give thanks to God. They will rejoice that his anger over their sin had been turned away. Well, the question is, how is it turned away? How could a just and holy God just change his mind? He's angry, then he's not angry. Well, the answer to that comes in verse 2. Behold, pay attention. Look at it carefully. God is my salvation. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now, there's a little bit of this that's lost in translation. Part that in, in the ESV is, that is translated, the Lord God, is literally Yah, Yahweh. The CSB, if you use the CSB, has it probably the best. It says, the Lord, the Lord himself. How is God's anger turned away? The Lord. The Lord himself. He does it. Alec Matier put it quite well when he said, reconciliation is not our willingness to have God, but God's willingness to have us. You see, salvation is an act of God, initiated by Him, planned by Him, accomplished by Him. 
It's not just that God himself accomplishes salvation, but Isaiah is saying God is salvation. What does the name Yeshua mean? God is salvation. Now, for Israel in the 8th century B.C., Isaiah 12 is a future reality. It happens when the root of Jesse, when the branch of David springs forth. It had not sprung yet. But it has sprung now. And we know that the root of Jesse, the branch of David, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So for those who are in Christ, this is not a future reality. It is the present reality. And don't miss this point. The salvation is not a program. It is not a ritual. It is not a religious system or a set of beliefs. Notice Isaiah 12 says, salvation is a person. The possession of Jesus Christ is salvation. And so when Simeon held the Christ child in his arms, he said, My eyes have seen your salvation. God is salvation. God's anger is turned away. And why is it turned away? Well, look at verse 1. So that... God might comfort his people. Just think of that. All, after all that Israel has done, 10 chapters of this, and God's anger is turned away because his desire is to comfort them. Because that's who he is. God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God brings great glory to himself by showing mercy to sinners. And for this reason, God's people will say on that day, I will trust and I will not be afraid. Come what may, I will not fear. Because Jesus Christ gave himself on the altar of the cross. He absorbed every ounce of the wrath of God for his people. And all who turn to him in faith are united to Christ and granted the very righteousness of God. And so the anger of God is turned away and all that is left is favor. Glorious, wonderful favor. My non-Christian friend, I'm glad you came to church today. I wonder what you think about all of this. This is what Christmas is all about. Now, you've heard it from those who were baptized today. This is about God sending His Son to save sinners like you from their sin. That Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection on the third day have removed the penalty of sin, secured eternal life for all who turn to Him in faith. And so, friend, I welcome you. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins, and you will find mercy. You will find God abounding in steadfast love. And then tell someone after the service is over today. Don't just do it in your own heart. Tell someone. Tell someone who looks like a regular around here. We'll begin meeting with you, talking with you more about what it's like to live for Jesus Christ. Prepare you for the day when you are baptized just like you saw with those two individuals.
God's salvation produces praise. And God's salvation produces collective joy. Here the you changes. Let's read verse 3 again. With joy, y'all will draw water from the wells of salvation. Here it goes from singular, now it's plural. One part of the most glorious reality of God's salvation is that when individuals are united to Christ by faith, they are joined to God's community, God's people. Which is why what we're doing this morning is so important. It's so important and vital to the Christian life to be a part of a local church. With joy, you will draw water from the wells. This is a collective joy, a communal joy. All together, we draw thirst-quenching water from the deep wells of God's salvation. Do you remember what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 63? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Beloved, you are constantly assailed by the lie that the thirst of your soul can be quenched by something other than God himself. If I only had more money, if I only had less suffering, if I only had a lover, if I was only sexually satisfied, if I only felt comfortable in this body of mine, this is the thirst of your soul. But whatever you do, do not turn to the wells of the world for satisfaction. Those wells are poisoned. They offer you only salt water, which will only make your thirst get worse. And the certain promise of God is that for His people, who draw from His wells with joy, that they will have satisfaction for the thirst of their souls. And God's fountain of salvation is unending. God's people draw from it in abundance. The picture that we have here is that of a people from every tribe, tongue, and language lining up buckets in hand, drawing out clean, clear, refreshing water from God's endless supply. The very life of God poured into them as they drink. God gives himself to his people liberally and without measure. Did you catch that in verse 3, the wells are plural? So whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever season of life that you are in, there are many wells of God's grace that you can draw from. And don't forget that God's salvation is a person. With joy you will draw water from the wells of God's Yeshua. With God's salvation, God's Jesus. Christian, every day that God gives you breath, draw waters 
from the wells of the gospel. Every day you are burdened with sin. Every day that you're weary with the world and need comfort, draw water from the wells of the gospel. When you're feeling spiritually dry, that you've just been pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and you're ju you've just got nothing left in the tank, draw water from the wells of Christ. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That the water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up for eternal life. This is the foundation of Christian community. This is, this is the growth of the Christian church that every Lord's Day we who have been united to Christ, gather around the fountain of the gospel and God's word is open to us and God's son is presented to us and we drink together. You see, we never graduate from the gospel. We never exhaust the utility of the cross. It is an endless Supply, an endlessly fresh, perpetually relevant supply for our very life. Every day we go to the cross of Christ where we lay down our burdens and we pick up the promises of God and we apply the healing ointment of God's salvation to our every situation, to our every success, to our every sorrow. Is your life falling apart? Go to the cross and take up the new life, the very life of Christ. Are you tempted with despair? Go to the cross where you will find hope secured. Do you fear that you won't have what it takes? Go to the cross where you will find that Christ is sufficient. Are you lonely this time of year? Go to the cross and hear again those promises that you are never alone. Whatever your question, the answer is Christ. Whatever your problem, the solution is Christ. After all, what did the Lord Jesus himself tell his disciples at the Last Supper? This is me, given for you, take and eat. With joy, draw water from the wells of God's salvation. With joy. Salva satisfaction is a need met, a desire fulfilled. But joy is in the abundance. It's that elated feeling of freedom that comes when the thing supplied exceeds the need. Exceeds the expectation. Joy is when the eyes light up. And you say, it's so much better than I imagined. That's joy. Satisfaction is drinking from the fountain. Joy is splashing around in the water. 
It's when the bounty of the thing drives away any concern of overuse. It's the childlike freedom that comes when there's no fear of running out of the thing that you need. It is God's pleasure, His great pleasure and His great glory to be your supply. And the wells of His salvation are infinite. They'll never run dry. And those who come to this well need to know no one gets turned away. And no one gets chided for having to need to drink. No one gets chided for having to need to drink again and again and again. God loves. Christian, when are you going to really believe this? God loves to give you the thing you need more, far more than you need to ask him. He loves being your supply. He loves. His favorite thing about you is your dependence on Him. In so many days, we just go about life trying to lie to ourselves that we're not dependent on Him. So Advent is about joy. Advent is for joy. The angel said it. We hear it this time of year. I wonder if we pay attention. After the Lord Jesus is born, an angel appears to the shepherds by night. Do you remember what he says? Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of good news of what? Great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. So joy is not peripheral to the gospel. Joy is central to the gospel. And what's the one thing that joy cannot help but do? Share itself. Joy is what drives discipleship, evangelism, global missions. (laughs) That's what Isaiah 12 tells us next. God's salvation drives corporate mission. You'll see this in verses 4 to 6. And that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Again, the you in in verses four to six, it's all plural. And there are more promises here, more you wills. In that day, when you see the root of Jesse spring forth, you will give thanks to the Lord. You will call on his name. And then what else? You will make known his deeds among all the people. You will proclaim that his name is exalted. Now, Christians, we have have words for that. We call it discipleship. We call it evangelism. We call it missions. The Lord's salvation drives mission for His global glory by satisfying His people in joy with Himself. You see, your joy in the Lord is not just like a happy little benefit. It's central. That's what God built you. Because He knows that if He can satisfy you in joy, what are you going to do? You're going to tell others. 
You're going to find every time that you can to tell others. See what I see? Are you kidding me? This is the Christian life. It is delighting yourself in the Lord and then telling someone else, you won't believe what I just saw. That's evangelism. And apologetics, which is related, is basically just a Christian saying to somebody who doesn't believe in God, Jesus is better. This is the Christian life. You turn up on Sunday morning, you sing songs, you pray prayers, you sit under preaching, you drink deeply of the fountain of God's salvation, and then with your heart satisfied and overflowing with the abundance of God's grace, you leave here and just tell other people about Him. You encourage one another. You go to a women's Bible study where your heart is stirred up in joy and then you share Him with others. You take someone to coffee and you tell them what the Lord has been showing you about Himself in, in His Word. Joy is infectious. And you see, that's the thing about joy, isn't it? The more that it is shared, the greater it becomes. The more you share your joy in the Lord, the more your joy in the Lord is increased. Evangelism is a joy project. Your enjoyment of a book increases when you share it with someone and then talk about it with them afterwards. Why else do we invite people over for the big game? Why are there art museums? Because the thing delighted in increases in its delight when it's shared with others. Verses 4 to 6 picture a community of people rejoicing in God and then turning outward, turning toward others, stirring up one another's joy in the Lord and then telling other people who've never heard about it, you've got to see this. Well, this is what the woman at the well did. Do you remember? John 4, after she drank from the well of God's salvation, you remember the first thing she did? She just ran back to her village and told everyone, I found the Christ. you got to see him. That's evangelism. It's built on joy. I want this experience for you. I know some of you have already had this experience. I have the privilege as a pastor to sometimes hear the, get the phone calls, go out to coffee or lunch with somebody and then tell me, this is what I've seen in God's word. I want that experience for you, reading and studying God's Word and the Spirit of the Lord opening your eyes to some glory in the Lord Jesus you've never seen before and you just have to tell someone. There's a well here. There's good water here. Come and drink with me. Christian, I would encourage you to incorporate a question into your just normal interactions with one another. It's just your normal, everyday interactions with, with one another. Let it just come up in conversation and just ask, what is something that God has been showing you about himself in his word recently? And just watch as the conversations go. I wonder what you would say if someone asked you that today over lunch. What is something that you've been learning about the glories of Christ in his word? 
There are certain friends of mine where our time together is often spent musing over the glories of Christ. Pastor Matt Flora is one of those. The life of God in the soul of that man is abundant. It just pours out of him everywhere he goes. There are few blessings in the Christian life better than real Christian friendship where you can spend unhurried time together talking about the glories of Christ. One of my hunting buddies, we, we probably talk about Jesus more than we spend actually hunting deer. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Verses 5 and 6 are God's people reminding one another of God's commands. Sing praise is a command. It's just not even an option. Let people know what God has done. Shout it. Sing about it. John Trapp, a commentator from the 17th century, noted this. This is going to hurt. No duty is more pressed in both testaments than this, of rejoicing in the Lord. Now, here's where it hits hard. It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent. I didn't say it. He said it. God could have built the Christian life a hundred different ways. But in wisdom, it goes like this. You wake up into this world parched and barren, trapped in your sin and without hope. And God in His grace comes to you in Jesus Christ and He opens your eyes to the glories of God in the face of Christ. And He grants you faith to believe in Him through which you take hold of Him. And you find freedom from your sin and the satisfaction of your soul. And you drink deeply from the wells of God's salvation. And this experience fills you with joy. And in your joy, you give your whole life to learning more about Him and sharing Him with other people, to leveraging your whole life to seeing Christ made known in all of the earth. And the more that you learn of Jesus, the more you share of Jesus, the more that your joy in Jesus increases. And then one day you die. And you realize that your experience of joy in the Lord was like drinking from a Dixie cup compared to the ocean of joy that is awaiting you in heaven, where your joy is deepened as you see him. And the more you see of him, the more of your joy that is deepened. And then it's deepened every more, and it goes on like this forever without end. That is the Christian life that God built for you, dear Christian. And that is what Advent was all about. To bring you into the joy of God's salvation. Christmas is for joy. And so, yeah, you can play that Hallmark movie forwards. Just as long as you leave the cafe at one point, leave the Christmas sweater, and land on Christ. Land on joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks. We thank you for sending Jesus to us. We thank you that by his death on the cross, by his sinless life, you turned away your anger from us and you brought comfort to us. You are our salvation. 
Father, we ask that you would forgive us for seeking satisfaction and salvation in any other thing. For how often we fail to see that we've been just like Israel. We have sought security and salvation from idols. Please forgive us. Lord, forgive us of our joylessness. Forgive us for not rejoicing in the Lord, who is our salvation. Lord, write these truths upon our hearts so that we might rejoice in Jesus and fearlessly, joyfully share him with others. Make us joy-driven disciplers, joy-driven evangelists, joy-driven missionaries, that Jesus would receive the praise that only he deserves. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. At the end of our service, we go to God's Word, and we look for an assurance of pardon for all of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God gives us many places in His Holy Word where He assures us that we have been forgiven of those sins. One of my favorites is Matthew 1, 21. And you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins.